Andrew Hoyam is the founder of the Aryan Press, located in San Francisco, California. Perhaps you could tell us how the press started. The press, Aryan Press, is uh, a name in line with some previous names that have been attached to this operation. Uh, I began printing in January 1961. After I'd gotten out of the Navy, I was a naval officer for three years. After I had graduated from Pomona College in Southern California. What did you study? I took a liberal arts education there. I, I had a major, it was government. Huh, funny, but, I studied that too. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I took a lot of courses in literature and art as well. So I got out of the Navy and I was going off to graduate school in political science at Columbia University, but I had about six to nine months, nine months to kill before the graduate program would start the following fall. Was this part of the GI Bill that enabled you to do that or not? No, the GI Bill wasn't working for us then. So I thought I'd uh, find something interesting to do and uh, I didn't want to use up any of my savings. I went up to San Francisco to call on a publisher that, where I'd placed a manuscript of, of, of a friend. It had been accepted, but it hadn't been published. So I went up and found that this publishing company was just one man, and he was operating out of a, what had been a cobbler shop. Now, you know how small a cobbler shop is. Mm -hmm. What was his name, do you recall? Yes, Dave Hazelwood. Uh, he had started a press called the Auerhahn Press, A-U-E-R-H-A-H-N. It's named after a rare German game bird, sort of a grouse. And uh, he was publishing Beat Generation Writers. And I was interested in what was going on in the new literary movement. So I called on him and the shop was sort of a mess with pied type lying about and I could see this guy needed help. So I said, I'd be willing to work for you for room and board. He took me on right away. Did he have room? <laughs> well, he was living in a large flat with some other beatniks and at least two of them were certifiably insane. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty wild. And I, I didn't know anything about printing, so I, I started from scratch. And I learned to distribute type by identifying the type that's lying around on the floor and on any flat surface. We didn't have very many different types, but mm -hmm. I still had to identify. What was it about publishing and printing that attracted you? Well, uh, I, I had always been interested in books. and Was that because of your parents or what? Well, my parents had been college and university teachers. My mother was an English professor. My father was a physicist. So there were books in the house. And uh, I took some literature courses in college. And while I was in the Navy, I was <clears throat> aware of some upheaval going on in the literary world. And I was reading uh, Evergreen Review, for example, and... So I, I knew some of the, the poets and, uh, and fiction writers uh, of that time, and, 
and I was I ordered some of the books that were being published by the Arahan Press, and they were quite nice. I wondered why are these so nice? Well, it turned out they were being printed, often from handset type by letterpress on good paper. They were nicely designed. So when I called on him, I already had an admiration for the the quality of the work that was being done. What I didn't know is how this little press fit into a a history of fine printing in San Francisco. And I didn't realize that just around the corner from this tiny little shop was the uh, magnificent Grabhorn Press, which was probably the best known fine printers in the country. They were very imaginative. Two brothers from Indiana and a good deal older than we were. The, uh, the younger brother was born in 1900, which is the year my father was born. And the older brother was 11 years older. And we admired what they were doing, but we didn't have the courage to go around and talk to them. What did you admire so much? Well, we'd seen their books. They're right. magnificent. They Why are they magnificent? Well, they were very carefully made and imaginatively made, limited editions. Imagine, what do you mean by imaginatively? Choice of type, how it was arranged, if there was artwork, how the illustrations were incorporated into the book. So different than others? Yes. Uh, fine printers sort of fall into two camps. On the one hand, there are those who are striving to make the ideal book beautiful. And oftentimes they will use just, they'll settle on one type that they think is the most appropriate type for them. And then they print all their books in that type. In some cases, proprietors of private presses have caused a proprietary type to be made. So that is their house type. And they... Stay with that. Sort of like William Morris. Morris had more than one type, mm-hmm. but they were types that he had designed and caused yeah. to be made. Like Golding. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Then he, yeah, Golding was the was the Roman type that he used, and he had black letter types as well. But on the other hand, there are fine printers that uh, enjoy variety. The Grabhorns were in that camp, and I am too. I don't like to repeat myself. Right. As you look around, you see books of all shapes and sizes and, and a great variety of types used. To suit the text and then, Absolutely. And then you, you pick an artist to, to suit the type and the mm-hmm. text as well, I right. guess, right? Or the type is being also being influenced by the linear quality of the art that the, or the style of the artist. So what do but, you start with? Do you pick the text first, then you go with the, the type and then the artist? or It varies. Right. But by the time we're beginning to print, we have a pretty good notion of a, of a total aesthetic for the book. Including the cover, obviously. And, well, oftentimes yeah. we haven't even touched the cover or the title page. You know, designers, they can't wait to start with the title page and the cover of the book, but we work the other way around. To me, the most important elements of the book are the text pages, the pair of text pages facing one another, what the margins are going to look like. Mm-hmm. You know, is this is this type appropriate? The Grabhorns were following in the tradition of Bruce Rogers, who was a great American book designer, and uh, he 
developed something that he liked to refer to as elusive typography. His typography alluded to, let us say, the period in which, uh, or, the, uh, or the culture from which the book came. So not a clear goblet then. Ah, and it, that took a lot of study on his part. And the Grabhorns were, were in, very much inspired by Bruce Rogers, so they, they emulated that in many ways, where they were, would try to find just the right type for that book. But it all, the type also had to work with whatever artwork is in the book. Now, not all their books were illustrated. Some, many of them are strictly typographic books. There might be, there might be some ornaments used. What do you think is the, the, the best uh, book they ever produced? Their most famous book is their edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass from 1930. It was printed for a random house. Bennett mm -hmm. Cerf was... Uh, was a client, and they did several books for Random House. Random House published limited edition books, by yeah. the way, mm -hmm. in addition to their trade books. And it's a magnificent edition, handset in a rare type designed by Frederick Gowdy, and has wonderful, simple woodblock illustrations for the openings of the sections of, uh, of Leaves of Grass done by Valenti Angelo. It's really a perfect book. It's one of the greatest books of the 20th century. You own a copy? I do. Signed? Um, well, certainly not signed by Walt Whitman. No, <laughs> but the Grabhorn Brothers, perhaps, or but you've, you've probably already got a lot of stuff from them, right? But that moves us to the next stage where you had the guts to go over there and talk to them, I guess. I did. I did because I was so frustrated. I was having trouble with a, with a, this platen press that I, we just had one platen press hand fed. It was quirky and bulky, and I just couldn't solve some press work problems. So I just screwed up my courage and went around the corner and introduced myself to the Grabhorns. And they were very welcoming and friendly. They were aware that there were some young printers around the corner. And uh, so they said, well, they just said to their pressman, whose name was Sherwood Grover, Sure, we, we, you go around the corner with him and uh, see if you can give him some help on that press. Well, Sherwood Grover went around and he said, you might try this and you might try that. He said, if all else fails, what I do is to kick the press. Okay. Of course, that, that, that gives me a sore toe, but it's satisfying. Right. It works. It works. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after... I guess I was around for four years, 1961, 62, 63, and in 1964, I was, we were still operating the, the Hour Hunt Press, and Edwin Grabhorn came around. Sherwood Grover had gone on to become a <coughs> traveling publisher's representative to, to book, booksellers. Well, you could make more money that way, or he just was tired of printing? Well, the, the, he was—he got more money for doing that than he was getting being a pressman. But uh, anyway, they needed a, a pressman, so they came around. Ed Grabhorn, the older one, came around and asked me if I'd come and work for them. And I said, "Would I?" And so <clears throat> I worked for them as a pressman, as a pressman, and uh, whatever else they needed. Edwin was a press was a pressman, and his younger brother. Robert was a typographer. He did the lockups. And uh, 
Jane Grabhorn, who was the wife of, of Robert, was the bookbinder. So they did everything there under one roof. Yeah. At various times they had more people than that, but those, that's how it had gotten down to in those days, mm -hmm. in 1964. So I worked for them for a year, working full-time for the Grabhorn Press, and still putting in my time at the Auerhahn Press. Actually, I was only working part-time for them, but then I was working full-time at, at Auerhahn. <clears throat> then at the end of that year, at the beginning of 1965, we closed the Auerhahn Press, and Dave Hazelwood went to work for me, and I hired another man by the name of Glenn Todd. So there were three of us working uh, Sorry, how did that work? How did that work? He, Hazel. he, Hazelwood went to work for me. We split up the assets of Auerhahn Press. I took the equipment, the, the types and the press and the paper cutter and so on, the, the equipment, and he took the book inventory of what, what we hadn't sold. Okay. And he continued to do some publishing in concert with uh, the press, which I was running. But I, I said, oh, I'm not going to be a publisher anymore. We, this is a great way to go broke. And so I just vowed I was going to follow the lead of the Grabhorns, who mainly did work for others, weren't doing much in the way of publishing. So they're like commercial printers then. They were, but well, fine, but very, fine. yeah. Top level. Yeah, the top level, and if you came to them, they are going to design. Mm, okay. So I established the same sort of system. Yeah. Uh, and I had gotten a, a big commission for, for a book by the uh, poet and, uh, and critic, uh, Charles Olson. Oh, okay. And then a couple of guys had come to me with, a, with, with this big job as a, a book of his essays, a substantial book. It was like a vanity press then for him. For, for who? For Olson. Like, why didn't Olson just go to a regular publisher to get that printed? Wasn't that easy in those days. He was well enough known, but... So he had to, he had to pay for it to be published? No, no, it, no. There were two younger guys who were, had started a publishing program. And they'd had me do some broadsides for them, but this is going to be their first big oh, book. Understood. Okay. And <clears throat> Donald M. Allen, who was a Grove Press editor, had arranged this. So I uh, made an estimate. They said everything was fine, and I went ahead and got the typeset. And then I was asking them to pay in advance, and they didn't pay. And they just, I couldn't reach them. They vanished. They were skunks. So, I had all this types sitting on, we didn't even have galley racks, so the type was stacked up on the floor in the steel trays, the galleys, with cardboard in between. And I had to pay the bill for the typesetting. I'm back in the publishing business. <laughs> so I published it myself. And then there was a trade edition brought out by Grove Press. And then in 19... So you made some money off this? Yeah, so... A little bit. So, yeah. So, in 1960, end of 1965, the Grabhorn Press closed. And in the summer of 1966, Robert Grabhorn and I formed a partnership. And that went on for seven years until he died at the age of 73 in 1973. And that was a wonderful time. Here he was, as I said, age of my father. We had a wonderful cooperative relationship. I learned an awful lot from him. 
and uh, we did some interesting projects. What's, what did you learn from him? I learned certain, a, a lot about the history of, of types, history of printing. What practical stuff did you learn? Not much about business. <laughs> <laughs> that I had to pick up the hard way. Right. He was a very good teacher. He was, a, he was kind of a scholar printer. He had a magnificent collection that he built very carefully over time of books about the history of printing and also on the development of type. He had a lot of type specimens. Hmm. Very important private collection, which eventually went to the San Francisco Public Library, where hmm. it is today. And it's very, it's kind of one of the most important holdings of the Special Collections Department. Hmm. So he would bring out things from his collection and when we'd get together for dinner or over the weekend, and I'd learn from him. I mean, you could actually see... Uh... Yeah. Did he have, a, he had obviously, a very good selection of type then. Well, we, when we went into business together, Edwin and Robert divvied up the equipment, and we got a lot of the equipment then. And, mm. and uh, then after Edwin's death and before Robert died, and I think this would have been about 1971 or 72, we acquired the balance of the equipment from the Grabhorn Press. So we had all the types, all the types, the, the printing and binding equipment, mm -hmm. and a lot of other stuff that came with our clear, clearing out the Grabhorn Press. Mm -hmm. That was part of the deal. We'd get this equipment for nothing if we cleaned it out. What was the first book the Aryan Press uh, published? The first book was published in 1975. Uh, so Robert had died in 1973, and um, I, I did some commission work in the, <clears throat> in the following year, but published the first book under the uh, Arion imprint in 1975. And it was a catalog of a one-man exhibition of my drawings at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco at the Le California Palace of the Legion of Honor. They have a, an Achenbach collection there <clears throat> of graphic arts. And so I had this exhibition of my drawings. And uh, Let's roll that back. So you're a good drawer. Well, I'm something of an artist. But I had been making drawings along with writing some poetry. Just because you love to do it? Yes. And, and did you take any writing or, uh, or drawing classes? or? Well, I took some art classes when I was in the college. Okay. But I'd done drawing all my life, from the time I was a child. And so this was an exhibition of your work? Yes. Where? At the Legion of Honor Museum here in San Francisco. And what's the Legion of Honor? Oh, it's, it's one of the two... Uh, main museums of the Fine Arts Museums of San So you must have been pretty damn good then. Well, not, not a slouch. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great thrill and a yeah. great honor. And uh, so for a period of about three months, I had this exhibition up at the museum. And it opened with me giving a poetry reading and so on. <laughs> and along with it, um, there was this catalog, which reprinted the poems that were in, oftentimes embedded or related to the drawings. 
So it was a literary work as well as an art book. An art book, yeah. Hmm. So that was the first. But then... Uh, How many of those did you print? Probably around 400. Maybe a little less than that. Hmm. 250 or so. Did you develop some kind of philosophy or approach or mission or when, when you set the, the press up? Well, Robert Grabhorn and I had done some publishing. And we also did a fair amount of commission work for other publishers, for the Book Club of California, for some institutional clients. But uh, once I uh, started printing and publishing on my own, I vowed that I would like to make an American contribution to the French tradition of the Livre d'Artiste, the Artist Book of France. Now, all too often in France, the, the Artist Book was sort of an excuse for a suite of prints made by an artist and hooked up with some literary work, short stories or poetry. But the two things didn't necessarily hook up. Now, of course, there are great books by Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse and so on that I wouldn't fault. But I wanted to get away from something where you're just sort of sticking together two different elements, one literary and typographic and the other visual art, whether it be original prints like woodblock prints and etchings or mm -hmm. something, or, or just reproduced. So the, uh, the text is often just like a second thought. Yeah. And also where the design of the book was so integrated that you couldn't pull these elements apart in your mind. Aesthetically, they would be bonded. That's what you wanted. Yeah. And so that was my goal. Hmm. Fairly early, I undertook a book with an artist by the name of Fred Martin, whose work I had was very much aware of and admired, partly because he often incorporated words or texts into his artwork. I went out to the Legion of Honor where he was giving a talk. And uh, at the end of the talk, I was introduced by a friend who was a composer and an art critic. And I shook his hand and I said to him straight away, Fred Martin, would you like to make a book with me? And he said, yes. <laughs> would you like to dance with me? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and so we got together and discussed this. He had made a trip halfway around the world and he kept a journal while he was traveling. And he was also very interested in 19th century travel journals. So he'd come up with this text that was a combination of his own writings and those from 19th century travelers to the same places. So he had quotations for these. And he, he proposed making drawings. And I suggested that we make drawings that would be colored with hand-cut linoleum blocks. So he started making ink drawings, and I, after I had established the format of the book, it was to be 
sort of squarish in format, which is hard to do. Very difficult problem to solve design-wise. With handset type in two columns. And the artwork was to be the same format, not double column necessarily, but the maximum size of the imagery would be the same as the text block, the two-column two text block. And I encouraged him to invade the text with elements. It could be a single column, it could be a part of a column, but it had to be the same width as, as a column if it was going to interrupt. Otherwise, if he wanted to do a full page spread, it would be the same size as the text block. And I said, and let's make as much variety as we can. So I had this grid laid out for the, the page, pair of pages, and he complied and went, went crazy. He just started making more and more things. Wonderful. I finally had to say, Fred, you're going to bankrupt me. We've got to, we're going to have to call a halt here because he was just making page after page after page. Now there were text pages. There was an established text. But if I had a problem about fitting something, he was right there and could edit it, expand it or contract it. So it was a real collaboration. And I cut a lot of the linoleum blocks myself. I, mean, I knew what areas he wanted to be in what color. So that was my first artist book. Yeah, so it wasn't really, a, it's not typical of what you've produced over the years. Actually, it had, bears a very close relationship to what I've done ever since. Work of literature, works of art, an amalgamation with typography, and sometimes rather ingenious ways of printing. Solving problems. Solving problems as you, as you go along. And starting with the guts of the book, not starting with the cover, not starting with the title page, establishing a style there and then going on with it, but getting the interior of the book right and then finally doing the title page and then finally after that, figuring out how you're going to enclose this book in a binding. What books are you most proud of having produced? Oh, lots of them. Um, uh, our edition of Moby Dick intended to be up there with what the, the Grabhorns had done with Leaves of Grass. So it's a, fol it's a folio, it's roughly the same size as the folio of the Grabhorn Leaves of Grass. It's 10 by 15 inches page size. Mm -hmm. It's entirely handset in Gaudi modern type and it has uh, Wood Engravings by Barry Moser. And uh, <clears throat> it was printed on specially made English handmade paper. What kind of English handmade paper do you know? Uh, well, it was made to my specifications with a bluish tint for the ocean by the Barcham Green Mill uh, in England. And the paper is so strong it had to be dampened before it was printed. Well, the Grabhorns had dampened their handmade paper before they printed Leaves of Grass, and so I did that. So that's that's really is a landmark book, one that you know, many people are familiar with. Partly familiar with it because of the fact that a reduced trade edition, 70 at 75 percent of scale, 
was published by the University of California Press, and it remains in print. Mm. So a lot of people have been able to enjoy Moby Dick. Something that You've published 111, soon to be 112 books. Is there one book that, if the regular collector or bibliophile wants to get a hold of, wants to own one of your books that they can afford that's really, I know they're all, they all reach a similar standard, but that's a really good book to have, what would you recommend? Well, so many of the books are out of print that... So they'd have to go to Abe or somewhere like that, or Biblio, or to find it yeah, online. Yeah, and, and for books that are out of print tend to go up in price, but I, I always say that to our subscribers, don't buy them as an investment. Buy them because you love the books. It's good advice for any yeah, book collector. Yeah. You'll be disappointed otherwise. Yeah, and we don't guarantee that book. What would that book be? Something that's not super expensive, but that gives them a, they can hold it in their hands and own it. Well, I guess we'd have to mention something that we've done more recently that is in print. Well, let's see now. How about Pedro Paramo? That's a novel by Juan Rulfo from the 50s. It's a masterpiece of uh, Mexican literature. And it inspired magic realism. And uh, it has an introduction by Alfred McAdam, a, a scholar and critic who teaches at Columbia. And it has 10 prints by Enrique Chagoya, who's a wonderful artist of Mexican descent. It's a ghost story. This uh, man goes off in search of his father. That's at, his, at his mother's behest, I want you to go to find your father who left me in the lurch. He owes us money, all the money he should have been sending to me for your upbringing. You go and demand that of him. So he goes off to search for Pedro Paramo. He goes a long way there in Mexico. And he enters a town and it seems to be pretty empty. It's a ghost town, and the people who are there are ghosts. Yeah. But that's $850, which is sort of midway in our... Our books nowadays start out, I suppose, around $700. Right. And then they go up, like The Bridge, which we published last year by Hart Crane and just finished binding as a 51-foot scroll is $2,500. Yeah. So what they're going to have to do then, if that's beyond your budget, is there a place where they can come and see the books? Yes. Other than they can come here for a tour, which I'd like to talk about, but is there anywhere else they can go and see the books? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> there are many libraries. New York Public Library has a very big, good collection. Yeah. There are college and university libraries, University of California at Berkeley has a very thorough collection going way back. <clears throat> and Stanford also has a very good collection. And there are colleges and universities around the country that have them and some uh, municipal libraries as well. So it's not impossible for people to go and see the books 
And actually touch them because you're yeah, allowed to. Yeah. yeah, wash your hands. That's all I ask. Yeah. Don't wear gloves because exactly. Yeah, if yeah. you wear gloves, you're gonna dog ear the pages because you can't feel what you're doing. I say just have clean hands. Yeah. And uh, that's all. Okay. <clears throat> the uh, you mentioned uh, the fact that grab horns were printing commercially as well as I guess doing their own publishing. Is that what you did to start with, or did you just go straight into uh, book publishing and that was it? When I joined the Auerhahn Press, it had an ongoing publishing program. And many of the books were slight, slender volumes, and mostly, mostly poetry. But they turned out to be important, important for that literary movement. And many of the authors were included in Donald M. Allen's uh, new American Poetry Anthology. So right off the bat, I was involved in publishing important works of literature, and I wanted to continue to, to do that. Yeah. We had to find ways of supplementing what income we got from the published books, but these, these were books that cost you know, $2, $4, yeah. I, I don't know, $5, something like that. But mm. And so we had to do other work, and we would... Uh, solicit to do uh, art gallery announce, uh, announcements. Yeah. Often the art galleries wouldn't pay or wouldn't pay timely. Right. And uh, we did programs for the Tate Music Center, you know, the experimental compositions, electronic music, that sort of thing. Yeah. Composers that would bang on car bumpers and but we printed beautiful handset, letterpress printed programs for it. So those things are pretty collectible. Yeah, yeah. And somehow or another we managed to stay afloat. What's the secret to your success, do you think? Perseverance, stubbornness, unwillingness to go under. Because the You don't the company compromise is, on standards either. No, the that. company has grown, you know, it's we st I started out with just a partner, and then there were, then it was me with two employees, and slowly it grew. I think at the time that we were printing uh, Moby Dick, I might have had three or four employees, and then the s retired superintendent of Mackenzie and Harris volunteered to come in and handset type for us. And Mackenzie and Harris is uh, our type, a uh, type foundry, the second division of Arion Press. And uh, all I had to do was to take him to lunch at one of the Blue Plate Special restaurants nearby and get him a glass of whiskey. Now, his quality of typesetting went down after lunch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it it was, didn't flow even more easily? No. No. So now we're about a dozen people. And that means the monthly nut is substantial. Mm -hmm. But... I am very proud to say that we have been in business now since, as Arion Press, since 1975. And you've got a beautiful facility here. It's just yeah. gorgeous. We're looking out over a lake, for crying out loud. Yeah, that's Mountain Lake in, in the Presidio. This is a national park, and we are a cultural tenant of the Presidio Trust. And it's a... 1928 built building, industrial building, it just suits us to a T. It's beautiful. 
And you do tours. Maybe you could tell us. Uh, yes, we have a down. we have weekly tour on Thursday afternoons at three thirty, and uh, it costs a little something to sign to to go to it. But what uh, does it cost? Oh, I don't know. Is it seven fifty or ten dollars, something like that? Okay. What do you get for that? You get at least an hour and a half. Sometimes it runs more than that, uh, but we we try to have everybody out here by five o'clock, which is when everybody when the employees quit. What time does it start? Three thirty. Three thirty. Okay. What about the the future plans for the for the press and for yourself? Well, we are certainly uh, fully engaged in an attempt at a succession plan to get other younger people in to carry on the tradition and perhaps to carry on the publishing program as in their own way. Yeah, just to, to make it clear, you do produce all sorts of different type that you sell to printers all about all around the, the world? Well, but mainly in this country, but yes, uh, McKinsey and Ayers or m &H Type, which is a company that was established in 1915 with a uh, with monotype equipment that was displayed at the Panama Pacific International Ex Exposition, does sell type to other printers and schools, designers and so on, who just, and hobbyists, printers from professional fine printers to you know, educational institutions. But the main business here is Arion Press and our publishing program. We do continue to accept co commissions for design and production of all kinds of printing, you know, stationary to full-scale books. Do you have any regrets? regrets? No, I don't think so. None? It's been, it's been a very interesting thing to do in life. And it's meant engagements with very, very interesting people. You know, some of the great artists of our time, William Kentridge, Wayne Tebow. That's what it's about too, isn't it? It's, oh, it's connecting with interesting people. Yeah. Robert Motherwell for Joyce's Ulysses. That was interesting. Wow. These guys are, or women are, artists can, can be uh, temperamental, that's for sure. Yes, some are not so easy to, to deal with, but uh, several of them just marvelous. Wayne Tebow, for example, and, and William Kentridge. Never a problem, just one solution after another. Right. <laughs> that sounds, uh, sounds like a pretty decent life. It's a lot of hard work, there's no, making no, there's no two ways about it. So, uh, but I enjoy doing uh, physical work, typesetting. You actually you continue to do that? that. Well, I have. Uh, I, I handset the entirety of Hart Crane's The Bridge mainly because the other people were all busy with other, other projects. And so it had been a while since I did a serious piece of hand composition. So I said, well, I'll take, take it up. I didn't do the type distribution. I had an assistant to uh, distribute. After we'd, I'd set up the first half and we'd printed the first half of the book, they had only enough type for one half. So the type had to be redistributed back into the type cases and then I re-embarked upon setting the second half. Finally, what, you, what do you think is your greatest accomplishment? I think it is the, the variety of books that we have made over time. It's 
hard to say what is my favorite. You know, it's like, which of your children is your favorite? It's that yeah. sort of thing. They've all got wonderful characteristics. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and but what I'm I, what I'm proudest about is that we've been able to do such a variety of books as to subject matter and as to format and design. So you've really been able to kind of stretch the, yes, push and, the, the envelope and... And the books evolve. It's one, one of the advantages of working the way in which we do, starting with the basic page. When I started out with Moby Dick, I set the first page and I thought, well, it really should have a sort of Hiroshige wave over the large initial C for call me Ishmael. But that wasn't the most important thing. It was page two and three. I went on setting and setting and setting till I got page two and three done and made sure that the width of the line, the margins, the letting between the lines was right. That what we call the weave of the page, the texture of the page, looked right. Now way back in the time when I was in partnership with Robert Grabhorn, the two of us talked about printing Moby Dick. And we even set a, a trial page using Gaudi Modern, the type that I ended up using. The difference was it was a bigger format, taller, a bit wider, and more lines on a page. And when I came back to do it many years later, 1970 seven or something like that. I hit upon this 10 by 15 format. That meant fewer lines on the page. And I think I reduced the, mar the, the measure a bit. But once those two pages were settled, it was almost as though the rest was going to be a breeze. Now, it wasn't a breeze, because we had to figure out how we were going to introduce the chapters. And I wanted them to follow along. So if a chapter ended toward the bottom of the page and there was room enough for that initial letter, and the heading, we do it and carry on. So that you'd have this, these solid pages interrupted by wood engravings, which were to have similar density to the type. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so considerations of this sort have had to be addressed by every book down the line. Yeah, and, a little challenge for you and, and uh, stimulation. Yeah. And so, so it's like the book evolves from within. And one of the ad great advantages we have in working this way is that we can make improvements as we go along. We can change things. A trade publisher can't. A designer for a trade publisher can't say, oh, I had a better idea, oh, but wait a minute, we're already on press. They want to see, the trade publisher wants to see the the jacket design, you want to see the title page and the opening of chapter one and the rest of it, not us. And, and we withhold judgment about what certain important elements of the book should be until we know that we've got the basics right. And then you can invent upon a theme. Seems to me that's why you've stayed young and unhealthy uh, and, and interested all your life. <laughs> 82. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, talking to You're me. You're most welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I've been speaking with Andrew Hoyan, who is the founder of the Aryan Press, located in 
The Presidio. It's not a park, is it? Or is it it's a park? It's a national park, but it's just called the Presidio. Okay. Located? In, in San Francisco. In San Francisco, California. Thanks again. Yeah.